Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. My Bible's open to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10 will be our text this morning. It's an interesting text, but for context, let's back up to verse 1 and read these first 10 verses of Ephesians 4. Paul writes, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Yesterday afternoon I was out running errands and as I was on my way home I turned down the street that we live on and I saw in the distance two young men not much older than our high school graduates today. They were wearing white Oxford shirts and black dress pants and they were on bicycles. And I was overwhelmed momentarily with a wave of sadness because I realized that these young men were attempting to do what countless billions in our culture are attempting to do and that is to win heaven through good works. And I was overwhelmed by the truth that these men will surely fail. As everyone who attempts to win heaven through good works surely will. This book of Ephesians that we've been studying explains clearly the role of good works in the life of God's people. First of all, they tell us what good works do not do. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so right away he takes out of any thought or any equation that works could somehow accrue merit. Here's what good works do. As we saw last week according to Ephesians 4, it shows that our practice is in alignment with our position. We do good works as Christians because we are saved, not because we believe it will save us. In fact, Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 4 that we are to walk, that is to live as an everyday ordered pattern of behavior, a life that is worthy of the calling with which we've been called. We've been called to salvation. We've been called to personal holiness. We've been called to be children of God. And the primary context in which this behavior and these attitudes are to be expressed is in the context of the local church. I was so glad to hear Tony say to our, our graduates, when you leave here, don't leave the church. Find a good Bible teaching, gospel proclaiming church and join it. 
And don't wait till you're 30 to start exercising your gifts. If you're saved, you have a gift now to be brought to bear for the glory of God. But you have to have the right attitude. We saw last week, it begins with humility. Humility is, is the understanding that everything we have is a gift of God. We haven't done anything to deserve it. We take no pride in our gift because we take pride in the gift giver. He is the one who's worthy of praise. And if we have that right attitude of humility, naturally, the way we treat other people, particularly other Christians, is going to be with gentleness. We're going to be long-suffering and forbearing and patient with one another, which will ultimately lead to the right action. We saw last week is being diligent to preserve unity. That is, you're going to lay aside personal preferences. You're not always going to demand your own way. You're going to give ground. And, and really, isn't that the sign of maturity? That's the sign of maturity in your children at home. When, when they stop demanding their own way about everything, you recognize maybe they're ready for a little responsibility. And so I'd say to our young people today, not just our graduates, if you're at home demanding to be treated like an adult, behave like one. Don't always demand your own way. Give ground and, and give preferential treatment to other people rather than demanding it for, for yourself. And there's some very good reasons to do that, particularly for Christians. We saw them last week. First of all, he says we're of one body. So, so if you are hurting the body, you're really hurting yourself. You're hurting something that you belong to. And he says there's one spirit. We all have the same Holy Spirit. We have one hope that is the hope of heaven, eternal life our heavenly inheritance. We have one Lord Jesus Christ who died for all. We have one faith that is the core doctrine of beliefs that we hold to. We have one baptism into Christ. And, and of course, there's one God and Father who is working in and through all of us for his own glory. And you know, young people, you've been taught, and I want to teach you one more time today before you, we send you out into the world. It was all of grace. All of grace. God did it for his own reasons, in his own plan, and for his own sovereignty. Next year, the year 2017, is a very important date in church history. Next year will mark the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, which began when Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the church door of the church house in Wittenberg, Germany. The essence of the Protestant Reformation is to seek the answer once and for all to one question. And the question is this, what is the true gospel? That's what all of the reformers sought to answer. The Catholic Church answered that question that the gospel is grace plus works. They would say grace is not enough. To that we have to add the sacraments. To that we have to add the church Tradition, But thanks be to God, those reformers upon whose shoulders we stand today answered that question, salvation is by grace alone. And so the battle cry of the Reformation to this day is sola gratia, grace alone. And the secondary question to that is by what authority do we know that? And the Catholic Church says the authority of the church the authority of our tradition, the authority of the Pope, and the Reformers answered that question, Scripture alone, sola scriptura. That's why when I stand in this pulpit, one of the first sentences out of my voice every Sunday is, let's open our Bible, because the Bible alone has the words of life.
every evangelical Christian who's truly born again recognizes that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. But here in these three, four verses, verses seven through 10, the Apostle Paul wants believers to understand that not only are we saved by grace, we live by grace. We are sustained by God's grace. And so let's look at that wonderful truth today. You have an outline, I hope, in front of you, and it has three points. The title of the message is Christ Gift. When we talk about grace, remember our definition of grace is that something that is unmerited. It is a gift that we receive that we have not earned and we do not deserve. We hold it in juxtaposition against works and against wages. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the grace of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the first point of your outline is the giver of the gift. If you wanna ask it in a question form, who gives this gift? Well, Paul answers that question in verse seven. He says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's the possessive there. This is Christ who gives the gift. And then he goes on to explain in verses eight through 10 why Jesus has the authority and has the right to give gifts to his children and to the church. He says in verse eight, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And remember, this is, is Christ's gift. Verse eight is actually a paraphrase of one of the Old Testament Psalms, Psalm 68, particularly verse 18. You know that uh, the Psalms are actually songs. Many of them were written by King David. And remember that King David was not only a poet, he was a warrior, he was a king, he was a conqueror. And in those days, as in every period of history, when a battle is fought, oftentimes there will be a monument built. I was in Montreal, Canada this week and got to see a number of uh, the forts there that, from the French and Indian War. And, um, a cannonball that was stuck in a great big cottonwood tree from the 1700s, and it was amazing. But all around there, there were statues, there were monuments to remind the people uh, of the victories that had been won in that city. Well, King David, rather than building a statue, he wrote songs. Remember, there were songs written about David. The women used to sing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands, and it drove Saul crazy with jealousy. And David wrote a song about a particular victory that God gave him over his enemies, the Jebusites. And he wrote the 68th Psalm and he says, he ascended on high and gave captives, a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He, he was speaking in his own context of earthly kings. What they would do uh, as David won a victory, he would take the Ark of the Covenant and he would proceed up the mountain of God, Mount Zion to Jerusalem in front of the people and they would celebrate God's victory. And then as all kings would do, he would distribute the spoils of war to his soldiers and to all of the, the people around. And then there would be a great parade and, and great victory. And the apostle Paul takes that victory Psalm of Psalm 68 and he applies it to Jesus with good reason. First of all, he says, he ascended on high. We know that uh, the victory that Jesus won was the victory over sin, death, and the grave, right? 
It's what we celebrated Easter, that the grave could not hold him and death could not keep him. Up from the grave, he arose, he arose victorious, we say. But after 40 days of proclaiming that victory on earth, in the presence of many witnesses, he literally ascended into heaven where the scripture says he's today seated at the right hand of the Father. So he ascended after his victory. And the scripture says he led a host of captives. He speaks here of the doctrine that's mentioned in chapter one of Ephesians, the doctrine of redemption. The idea is that every person is born in bondage to sin. We are chained, as it were, to our own sinfulness. But Jesus has set us free and the purchase price for our freedom is his own blood. He shed his own blood for our soul and he redeemed us. He purchased out of, out of slavery and he led the captives free. Then it says he gave gifts, plural, gifts to men. As I said, a conquering king would distribute the spoils of war to his subjects. The question is what gifts has Jesus given to his subjects, the church? Well, first and foremost, he's given the gift of the Holy Spirit. You remember in John chapter 14 when Jesus was announcing that he was going to die, go away. He said, let not your heart be troubled. Then he went on to say, if I go away, I will come again. He says, but I will also send another comforter, right? He promised that when he left, he would not leave them as orphans, but he would send the Holy Spirit of promise, which he did in Acts chapter two, right on the day of Pentecost, he told them to go and wait for the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit descended with power. And there were tongues of fire that uh, were all around that room. And, and Jesus kept his promise. Not only did he give the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he gives it to every true believer. You have indwelling you the Holy Spirit of God if you're born again. Not only that, the scripture says he gives special gifts. We call them spiritual gifts to every believer. We'll see more about that in, in a moment. Then next week, Lord willing, we're going to see that he gives people, he gives teachers and leaders and evangelists to the church. And then he says, not only did he ascend, but, but he also ascended. Verse nine, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? You know that uh, Jesus, according to Philippians chapter two, as the second person of the Trinity enjoyed all the rights and privileges of heaven. Angels day and night worshiped him. But, but Paul says in Philippians chapter two, that he did not hold on to that position, grasp it tightly, but he willingly in humility relinquished that, right? Poured himself out and became humble, a servant, born of a virgin, lived a perfect righteous life, died a shameful death, the death of criminals on a cross on our behalf. The scripture says he descended into the grave. Thanks be to God, he did not stay there while in Sheol, the abode of the dead. First Peter 3.18 says he made proclamation. <laughs> he declared to the spirits there that he was victorious. And on the third day, he indeed rose again. And so who is the giver of the gift? Well, certainly it is God through the authority of Jesus Christ as he has made a name greater than every other name because of the victory that Jesus won over death. Now let's look at verse seven. We've looked at it kind of uh, 
backwards today, starting verse 8. But verse 7 says, but. Now there's a conjunction, as you know, but it's more than a conjunction. It's a transition word, which leads to the verses above it. The verses just above verse 7, verses 4, 5, and 6 are all about unity. Remember? One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope of our calling, one God and Father. That declares what makes Christians the same. We have common ground with Christians anywhere in the world who are truly saved because of those truths expressed in verses four, five, and six. Now, but now for the next three or four verses, he's gonna say, here's what makes us different. So what did not happen when you were baptized into Christ is that he stamped you out identically to every other Christian. What a boring church it would be if we were all like that, right? Instead, he takes this diversity of people, diversity of backgrounds, diversity of ethnicities, diversity of educational attainment, diversities in every area of life, and he makes them one and uses those diverse gifts for his own glory. Now, this is what this section of scripture, verses seven through 10 is all about. He says, but to each one of us, grace was given. Now, he's not talking about here the grace of salvation. That is assumed. If you are saved, we know it's because of God's grace. Now he's talking about the grace for living out the Christian life in context of the church. He says to each one of us as Christians, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now what that is saying is that we cannot take credit for our spiritual gifts. So if you have the gift of teaching or the gift of generosity or the gift of encouragement, whatever your gift may be, don't pat yourself on the back on that. Don't, don't shine the spotlight on yourself and, and look at me. Use that as a means to give him glory because he's the one that, that's distributed the gifts. We're just the beneficiaries of the gifts and we have a responsibility to use that gifts, those gifts as we're about to see. Let's hold your place there in Ephesians 4 and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are three or four places in the New Testament where we find solid teaching about spiritual gifts. And probably the most famous is the one you're turning to now, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse four, Paul is teaching Christians at the church at Corinth who had all kinds of problems. They had sin problems, they had unity problems, you name the problem, they had it. So Paul gives some very basic teaching on spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, four. He says, now there are varieties of gifts but the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. You see what Paul did there? The same thing he did, we saw last week in verses one through six of chapter four of Ephesians. He brings to bear all three members of the Trinity when it comes to the distribution of these gifts. So he said, there's a variety of gifts. Not everyone is alike. He makes us different so that we are greater together than we are individually. And it's through the same spirit. He says there are a variety of ministries, right? Everybody doesn't do the same ministry in the church, but the same Jesus, we do them for. Varieties of effects, but the same God who's sovereign over all of the effects of our ministries. You, you see his point. The focus should be on the giver of the gift rather than the gift getter. Now, secondly, what is the scope of the gift? If the giver of the gift is God, 
what is the scope of the gift? Back in Ephesians 5, chapter 4, verse 7, he says, but to each one of us grace was given. So how many Christians in the church have a spiritual gift? Every one of us, each one of us. There's no one left out. One of the reasons I told you earlier in our study of Ephesians that I felt so impressed that we needed to study Ephesians, particularly in this time in our country's history, is that so many Christians are walking around depressed, morose, defeated, and they can't see any hope. And yet here very clearly it says there's not one Christian who's a tack on, an add on, or an appendix. That every person has a gift. No one's been left out and everyone is essential. And we have a reason to glorify God is that he has gifted us to do so. Every believer is the beneficiary of God's grace, not only for salvation, but also in the context of serving the church. Every believer has a gift that has been measured out to us, and therefore there's no room for boasting. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, he says, individually you have been given these gifts. You are uniquely and, and wonderfully gifted. Now, I told you there's some other places in the New Testament where we find this truth. Uh, one of those places is Romans chapter 12. So let's turn there quickly. Romans chapter 12. And by the way, in, in none of these texts that I'm reading would we declare these to be exhaustive lists of all the spiritual gifts. They're just representatives of the many manifold gifts, he says, uh, that are available to Christians that he gives the gift church with. Romans chapter 12 Verse 6. Again, now Paul is writing to the church at Rome. Romans 12, 6, he says, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his teaching, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with Cheerfulness. So what's his point? He's saying, look, God did not give you a gift. He establishes very firmly. You, if you're saved, you have a gift. The question now is why? Why did God give you a gift? Well, we know why not. It's not to hoard and to hide, right? Jesus says a man lights a lamp. He doesn't put it under a bushel basket, does he? What good is it under there? Our, our gifts are be to used for God's glory through the church. Another good reason, young people, why you need to stay involved in a church when you go off to college or the military, when you get a job and start your own family, is because the church is the primary vehicle and means that God brings glory to himself. And if you're not involved in a local church, you're probably not doing a good job of bringing glory to God. I hear people say all the time, I had someone say it to me this week, many, many people said it to me this week, I love God, I love Christ, can't stand the church. Don't want to have anything to do with the church. I just want to be an individual Christian, worship him on my terms, come and go as I please and, and not have much contact with other Christians, really don't like other Christians. Dear one, if that is the attitude of your heart, I highly question the validity of your salvation. Because Christ did not save anyone to be isolated and individualistic in an island unto themselves. He saved them so that he could gift them with these gifts so that he could 
glorify himself as Christians edify one another. First Peter chapter four, verse 10. The answer to the question, what is the purpose of your gift is this. Hear this, Peter writes, as each one, there's that phrase again, as each one has received a special gift, comma, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So if you're saved, that means you have a gift. If you have a gift, that means you have a stewardship. A stewardship is the idea that what you have does not belong to you ultimately, right? It was a loan to you, it was a gift for you by God, one of which he will one day hold you accountable for. Now we know, we like to remind the pastors that they're gonna be accountable, right? I say it to our pastors every, every week or so. We read passages that tell us that let not many of you become teachers, knowing you'll be held to a higher standard of judgment from the book of James. We read passages like Hebrews that, that, that say we are accountable for the souls of the, the flock, the, the congregation, and, and that, that's heady stuff and that's weighty stuff. But it's not just the pastors. He says here that each one has a special gift and therefore has a responsibility to be a good steward of that gift. And so if you are refusing to exercise your spiritual gift because you don't like those folks down at the church, you're in sin. Because the Bible says God's going to hold you accountable for the gift that he's given you and how you've used it and expressed it in the context of the church. So why does he give us the gift for mutual edification? You know, the word edifice is building, right? So to edify is to build one another up. He's not talking about inflating one another's ego, right? He's talking about taking that which is disjointed and not very firm and building it up to where it is something of beauty and of substance. And we would say mature, right? In the context of the body. You, you parents that are... Sending your kids out into the world this week. There's a thousand memories running through your mind right now, right? When they were born, kindergarten graduations, vacations, Boy Scouts, proms, all those things. And you're thinking right now, it went by so fast. And you're praying and hoping that they're mature enough to handle it, right? As we all are. Well, this is what Paul aimed at as a pastor and as apostle was, was spiritual maturity. So how do you recognize when maturity is happening and, and when it has happened? It's when your children stop demanding their own way and start serving other people without having to be forced to do it, right? That's how we measured at our house with our four, four children. If your child is demanding more responsibility, treat me like an adult. Watch in their life if they are submitting to authority. Watch if they are without your forcing it upon them. Showing deference to other people. Not always demanding their own way. Putting the needs of others ahead of themselves. You know when you see that, hey... Some maturity has happened, right? That's the same thing in the church. 
when we start walking in humility, when we start uh, treating one another with gentleness and kindness, when we put the other person's preferences ahead of our own, Paul says that that's when we recognize we're, we're of the same body. We have one God and one Lord and, and, and one spirit and, and we recognize it's not all about us. We can't take any pride because we're simply the beneficiaries of the grace of God. We have a home awaiting us in heaven because Jesus died in our place. And we have the ability to please him now because he has gifted us with the Holy Spirit and he's given us special gifts. And our job is to employ those for the benefit of all our brothers and sisters so that ultimately God gets glory through the church, right? That's why we're here as a church, so that God would be, receive glory through us. Let's pray that he does. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for these young people who uh, sit before me in their mortar boards and robes. And Father, I thank you for the 18 years or so that their parents had with them. And Lord, we are sending them out into a world that's very different than the one most of us grew up in. And it's frightening to think about it. And yet, Lord, you are sovereign. Greater is he that is in them than he that is in the world. Lord, I pray you'd guard their hearts and minds from temptation and the evil one. Lord, I pray that they would hold fast to the commitments they've made, many of them in their childhood. Pray they would not stray from the faith. Lord, I pray they would find churches to belong to wherever they go in the world. I pray they would exercise their unique gifts for your glory all the days of their lives or until Jesus returns. Lord, I pray that not only for these graduates, I pray it for every member of First Baptist Church of Keller. May we bring glory through our gifts to you. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.